So we reach beatitude number eight, which I think is the last beatitude in a coherent, semi-coherent succession of statements. There is one more in verse 11, but I think that's probably more of an extension of the one in verse 10, or more of a capstone or a punctuation point to drive home some of Jesus' point, maybe even acting as a transition going to his next set of statements. Anyway, so I'm having trouble starting this one, and I think it's because of a few reasons. Hey, but the thoughts aren't quite completely congealed, but I really want to get this out. It's like the idea of a yarn ball. I understand what it's trying to say, but this is why I record instead of write, is because trying to untangle it and line it all up in a way that's coherent to my listener, you, is proving a little bit of a challenge. And I'm also falling into the trap that I often accuse others of doing feel like I have to be a pastor or something, give a sermon, and that's not what this is. These aren't sermons. These are thoughts. Hopefully coherent thoughts, but thoughts. Uh, I hesitate to say teaching. That's not really what I want to do. Anyway, it's also hard when you take the Beatitudes in isolation like I have been. You almost have to, I guess, to really ring them out, but... Keep in mind, these are the first few statements of what amounts to essentially arguably 20, 30 minutes, at least the way that Matthew has it written, possibly even longer if Matthew didn't give every single thing that Jesus said. So to really have the full impact, you have to imagine yourself as being one of the people sitting on that hillside, hearing these in quick succession. Not rapid fire, but quick succession. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And all of these are short, almost pithy statements that Jesus makes to really drive home a point to his audience. And I've constantly been coming back to who is this audience. And I think I've also fallen into another trap there of making assumptions about this audience which really aren't necessarily valid. So we know from the end of chapter 4 that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee. He starts in Nazareth. He gets rejected. Uh, He starts in Nazareth. Starts moving throughout Galilee, goes to Capernaum, and then from there he starts moving about even more, and his fame spreads throughout all Syria. And at least something that I found online, it's not the most academic of sources, but hey, step up and do your own research. Sorry, that sounded rude. Um, Syria here could be meaning just Jesus's, his reputation went north, spread pretty far north from Galilee, which is already in the northern part of Palestine. And his reputation spreads. So he goes about teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his frame spread north, and they brought him all the sick, the afflicted with various diseases, whatever. All right, so the question then becomes, people are coming to see Jesus because his fame spread, his reputation. Well, his reputation for what? Well, he did two things. He taught and he healed. Chances are... I don't think this is an unreasonable leap. It is probably more likely that he was known as a teacher. Oh, what did he teach? I have no idea, but he made that cripple walk. Let's go here. Uh, something about 
you know, I think he read from Isaiah once, and it was kind of cool. But dude, he restored sight to that blind person. So it's probably his fame for a healer that is really spreading, which would make sense if they're bringing to him all the sick. They're bringing to him people to be healed. And I've gone into a bunch of different detail about how all these different people, the sick and the ones caring for them, are in dire economic or social straits. They're desperate people. They need their lives improved. And I've assumed that most people fall into this boat of being poor and destitute and desperate and really needing anything to improve the quality of life of someone or themselves so that they can actually be have a chance to live outside of dire poverty. And maybe that's true. But it doesn't stop there. It says, great crowds followed him from Galilee. Okay, the Decapolis, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from Galilee. And even from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So actually, people are coming from all over the region. And that takes time. It takes a while to get there. Do they not work? So I like to have paid time off in those days. They have to walk or caravan. Takes a while. How do they know where Jesus is? How do they find him? They're going to have to stay places. Again, all of this requires money, requires food, requires time away from employment. Unless you're poor and destitute and you don't have any employment, which I guess you have all the time in the world. Uh, but I think it's safe to say, let's start with a lot of these people are average people, which is a thing we can relate to. They're average people trying to make a go of it in a life sucks kind of a world. And all of them, I would wager, are looking for some kind of a way for life to be improved. We also know that they're living underneath Roman authority, oppression, depending on your source. And there is the stereotype of, you know, the Romans as these great persecutors of the Jews, this evil imperial power. And that's not untrue. But in the day-to-day -day life, I would wager that that's probably less oppressive than people sometimes make it out to be. Possibly even some of the Jews themselves who just chafe at being under Roman rule. And like a lot of us, are prone to hyperbole when they talk about governing authorities that they don't like. Now, that doesn't mean that it was all rosy under the Romans. I'm just saying we need to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. All right. So, what Jesus is doing with these people who are seeking ways to improve life is he gives some pretty impactful, ironic statements. They all want to be blessed, or they at least want to hear what this guy has. They want to see how he blesses these other people. And he gives them some statements on what it actually is to have a blessed life, who it actually is that is blessed by God, and what is the result of that blessing. And he comes back to, Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to pretend that one of you is sitting in front of me right now, see if I can't hammer this out. All right, so, at the risk of having already lost you, which is unfortunate because I, my whole point is to be clear, 
This is probably one of the hardest ones because it's so easy to say and yet so challenging to grapple with. So first off, let's take that word persecute. Now, the Greek word means it's a bit more general than what we what we understand. What we need to do is we need to remove all of our caricatures or baggage or connotation from some of these words. So to the Greek word for persecute here is to be harassed, troubled, molested, or mistreated in any way on account of something. Okay. Now from there we can get to what we commonly understand as persecution, which is this continuous going after pursuit of someone in order to punish or mistreat them or treat them harshly or molest. And molest really just means to bother. To bother them on account of some particular reason. Persecution can be formal. It can be informal. And the thing that we need to understand, I guess, is that persecution is real. People do this to other people, either through legal systems, taking to courts for various things, or more socially, extra-legally, outside the law. And the effects of persecution can be pretty horrific on those who are targeted. And the thing that Jesus makes clear here is that we need to resist falling into the idea that the victim of a persecution is somehow inherently, holistically innocent. I may be targeted for a specific reason, and that reason may be unjust. And the things that I experience on account of that particular unjust targeting may themselves be horrific. And that's bad. But that doesn't necessarily make me a good person. Do I deserve what I'm getting? Probably not for that particular reason. But that doesn't automatically make me a saint. I'm reminded of something that could come up regarding my students. I could have one student who's being a tool to another, and he's not right in doing so. But this other guy, or the other student who's being targeted, maybe he does something in retaliation, or maybe he does other things to other people, or I see him, like he's constantly a cheater. He comes to me, he's like... Oh, you should, you should punish him for, for targeting me. I'm like, yeah, I'll deal with him. You know what? I'm also going to deal with you for your crap. Neither of y'all are good. I will punish him for persecuting you for the particular reason that he's targeting you, which is an unjust reason. And I will do my best to make restitution to you for that particular persecution. But I'm not going to deify you. I am not going to canonize you, turn you into some kind of an official saint, kiss your ass simply because somebody's persecuting you, no matter how unjustly. Because you might still be 
you've still got your own issues, your own things that you're accountable for. And that's the thing that's hard. It's really easy to say. Because how do you look at somebody who survived the Holocaust and say that? I mean, I guess you don't. Not unless you're, you know, Jesus. But I guess it's also thank God that most of us throughout human history haven't suffered something quite like the Holocaust. But I think the point still stands. What Jesus is trying to get people to do throughout all the Beatitudes is be introspective as opposed to extrospective. Stop looking at your circumstances and look internally at yourself. Because what is salvation? It is not deliverance from circumstance. It's the making healthy of the human soul. Fun fact, etymologically speaking, salvation actually is related to, is derived from a Latin word for to be made well. So, blessed are those who are persecuted. They will be delivered. They will be restored. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their persecutors will be judged. They will be vindicated. But again, persecution happens for a particular reason. And what here Jesus is saying is that it's not all of you who are simply persecuted, overtaxed, evicted, hounded for rent money, held at bay with food or deprived of whatever. Those of you who are harassed specifically because you live life according to what is objectively right. Do a quick word search, blue letter Bible, the word for righteousness. I go back to the Latin, even though it's not written in Latin, it's written in Greek. But the Latin word for righteousness here that Jerome uses in the Latin Vulgate is justitia or justitia, where we get justice. But that word itself is derivative from a word where we get things like jury, which is a word that roughly translates as to right or law, but it has this idea of that which is obligatorily binding by its nature. That which is objectively right. And therefore, because it is objectively right, it is binding to us. So, if you are harassed and molested and targeted continuously, specifically because you are living your life as is objectively right and binding for the human being to do, in other words, if you do hunger and thirst after righteousness, and in doing so, you speak and behave towards people in certain ways. If you are meek and are treated like a doormat. If you are merciful. You can jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 13. If you are loving, patient, kind. Or even if you're admonishing, even a little bit harshly. If you faithfully sting your friends as often as is necessary, if you take your sword and you strike the face of your friend 
That's another way of understanding iron sharpening iron as iron, you know, strikes another. If you're persecuted for these reasons, basically, if you are called out for living, for functioning, as God would have you function, and I, I'm, you have to forgive me, I feel like I'm going to be, I'm assuming too much about you, because this is so much of how we talk in church and sermons and messages all the time, but I still feel like so many of us, so, we miss the point, because there are specific ways in which God would have us function. And I know all of you have heard, oh, yes, it's according to his word, but we really need to understand that it is, it's actually according to his word. And it's not that hard to see, but it's sometimes that blunt to do. And it is kind of black and white. And so the thing I'm trying to avoid is the caricature of, it's not even saying if you're persecuted because you're a Christian. It's not simply saying that you're being persecuted simply because you identify with a certain denomination. A lot of these people identified as being Jews. But Jesus is still calling to be introspective. It's so easy to like the person in Monty Python, help, help, I'm being oppressed, when we're really not. Or if we are, is it actually for the sake of righteousness? Or because we are living life holistically and consistently according to the direction of the Spirit of God. I think probably the thing that we would fall into most nowadays is the victim mentality, we as Christians. Oh yes, I am a Christian. Oh yes, we are being persecuted. These evil liberals are destroying our country and our Christian nation and oh, we gotta be prepared for it, guys. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not. I would say that such a perspective, though, isn't exactly sober. So easy to build worlds in our own heads and then live in our fantasies and actually deal with the one that's actually in front of us. So to cap it off, this is probably one of the most introspective ones. Am I living my life according to the objective, obligatory dictates of how God has established the human being to live and relate to others? Or am I not? One more thing is that it's also, in our context nowadays, 2,000 years removed, to see or to read all of these statements as holistically... We read them as statements outside of themselves. Or outside of context to other things. And we are, our instinct is to, to give this broad, holistic application and understanding to them. But again, if we go back to the original audience that's there, certain ones of these, they're all meant to make an impact and cause introspection, but they're not necessarily all going to be the same kind of impactful for every single audience person to the same degree at that moment. They're all true. But what Jesus is doing again is he's hitting all these different kinds of demographics. Something that applies to you right now and something that will apply to you because you are human. So maybe you're not being persecuted right now. 
Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you are, but be introspective about, am I living according to righteousness? And if I am, and then, because of that specific thing, I do get to become targeted by someone, for whatever reason. It's okay. I'm going to keep living according to that righteousness. Because to me belongs the kingdom of heaven. I will be with God. I will be one of his people. Dwelling in the new Jerusalem. And those who target me specifically for that reason. Will get what they deserve. And I have to say this one more time as a caveat. Be careful though. Not to overlook your own sins simply because you're the butt of somebody else's.